Uh, hello and welcome to another episode of CryptoCast. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Rachel Spink, who is an employment lawyer in our team of all forms of, all forms of firms. Hi Rachel, it's great to have you on. Hi James, good to see you. So I think employment is quite an interesting one because it's one of those ones I think people don't always focus on as much as they should when they start off. What do you think are kind of the most important things for startups to focus on from an employment perspective when setting up shop? Well, when you start your business, you probably won't have any employees or so you might just have the founders. You might be the only founder. And if you're going into business with somebody else, it's worth documenting the terms on which you're going to work with each other and for the company. And I've heard many times, well, I don't need terms because we're best mates and we trust each other. Unfortunately, as lawyers, we tend to see the other side of it when that trust has broken down and things have gone wrong. Um, and trust me, it's far better to get things straight at the start in an employment contract. Um, so both of you are clear on what's expected. So things like how will you draw income from the business? Uh, will you receive bonuses and how will they be calculated? How often will you review your salaries? Um, how many hours a week will you be expected to work? And that's one that can cause issues, you see, because some t I've heard founders uh, get cheesed off as the other founder has basically not done much since um, starting the business and they end up um, at odds. So it's, it's best to sort that out at the beginning, what expectations are. Um, and when you move past that phase onto employing more people, more obligations will kick in. Um, and there are certain minimum obligations on UK employers, which you need to be aware of. So it's things like you have to obtain proof of permission to work in the UK. Um, you have to tell employees what you'll do with their personal data so that you comply with the GDPR. Um, and we normally recommend giving employees a data privacy notice ex explaining what you're going to do, how you process the data, etc. Um, you've got to pay national minimum wage, obviously. You've got to auto-enrol employees into uh, a workplace pension scheme. And you've got to set certain things out in writing. So because you have all these obligations, it sounds onerous, but if you just get it done at the start, it, it helps um, avoid lots of problems. Um, I'd probably also recommend that you get certain minimum policies in place as well, James. It would be, you might not think you need any policies, um, but if you think about it from this perspective, think what can go wrong if, say, your employees have a Twitter account and they're tweeting things in a personal capacity, which could still affect your, you know, the reputation of your business. Are you happy for them to just say what they like about their work, about their job, um, or, or do you want to constrain them in some way, just have a few ground rules? Um, if you if you want to do that, then it's best to do it in writing and set the guidelines out in a policy, because uh, even certain, you know, harmless comments can blow up into a media storm, as we often see, um, and you don't want to be caught on the wrong side of that. Um, lastly, I'd say um, you'd probably want to have other policies such as um, discrimination, harassment, uh, things like bribery, etc. Because if you have those in place, they can almost act as a defence. If your employees go off and do something uh, wrong later, you can say, well, I did give them a policy to say, 
you know, don't do this. Uh, and that can go a long way in helping you. Um, one thing that I would say, actually, I said finally, I've got one more thing to mention. Um, with fintech startups, a key issue will be protecting your confidential information. And whilst the law of confidentiality protects certain information from being disclosed after someone leaves your business, even if there's nothing in writing, it's far better to ensure that you have a well-drafted clause uh, to prevent your confidential business information leaking out by your competitors. And by well-drafted, I mean a clause which contains a list of examples of what you consider confidential information to be um, and you're also going to want to think about including clauses to deal with intellectual property uh, protecting that and also uh, restricting what your employees might do once they leave the business so that's a big long list it might put people off uh, but m the message basically is get it all in writing at the beginning and then you're sure of what your terms are and everyone knows uh, what the position is that's very interesting. I think particularly relevant to people in the crypto world, given that we've seen a couple of issues with differences between firms and employees as to what extent those employees can be political on social media, given that some of the stuff going on within the crypto space it is inherently quite political. Um, and, and, and people have been accused of being disingenuous. Mm, absolutely. And it, it may be fine, it might be expected that people engage with social media and indeed promoted as part of the job uh, to engage with the discussions online. Uh, but it, it's, it's a good idea to set out what the ground rules are and what's expected. And then people can't go off on a frolic of their own and then say afterwards, well, you're expecting me to do this, you wanted me to engage, it can backfire. So it's a good idea to just get this sorted at the beginning, I think. Yeah, I, yeah, and I think one of the things I've, the other things I've seen is is the use of the word bank uh, by institutions which aren't banks has been a particular issue for quite a few firms I've dealt with and, and ground rules I've done, I think, in close financing. I think, well, just another, going, going to something slightly different, um, one of the things I see quite often is firms which refer to having employees and others which are kind of more bringing in consultants. Is there a particular advantage from a legal perspective kind of to structure it so you're mainly employees or mainly consultants or is it a question of more how you implement it in practice? I think the reason some ventures prefer to use consultants rather than employees, uh, I should say first of all what the difference between the two is, uh, a consultant is generally a self-employed individual, uh, they can work via the, a, a company or they can work on their own behalf an employee is somebody who is directly employed by the company and you have control over what they do. Now, the reason some ventures prefer to use consultants rather than employees is because there are far fewer obligations in using consultants, which can give you more freedom, which is obviously quite attractive um, when you're starting off a business. So, as I mentioned earlier, if you employ staff, then you have to comply with quite a a lot of legislation such as auto enrolling them into pensions, giving them statutory maternity leave and pay, uh, paying them redundancy payments, that sort of thing. That that only applies to employees. Um, they can bring claims from fair dismissal as well, which people who aren't employees won't be able to bring. 
Um, when you engage consultants, it's usually on the basis that they're self-employed and they have to sort out their own insurance, pensions, tax. You just pay them the agreed rate. They do the work. That's that. Now, the downside to engaging consultants is that they can go and work elsewhere without much in the way of notice to you. Um, usually consultants agreements won't have a very long notice period because that would point away from being self-employed. Uh, so that can leave you in the lurch because it's rare for a notice period to be longer than about a month. It can be a lot shorter. You know, you've got to find somebody else quite quickly where when you're a startup that, that can be quite challenging when you're already doing absolutely everything else in your business. Um, Similarly, in a self-employed contract, there's usually, well, it will almost always say they don't have to do the work, they can turn it down. And that's part of, um, you know, the basis of being self-employed. Um, so, again, that that leaves you with less options for kind of guaranteeing that you're going to get the work done. Um, and finally, there is a risk of um, if they're working day in, day out for you, that HMRC are going to come knocking and say that they are actually deemed to be an employee anyway. Uh, which is a risk and it can leave you liable to a large tax bill. So I'd say there are benefits and drawbacks to either option. Um, if they're going to be doing a lot of work for you and you want to work closely with them and integrate them into the business, then you probably are going to be better off employing them. Um, so you can achieve that greater degree of control uh, and you know work with them. Hopefully they can become part of the business. Um, if it's more project based, the work that you want them to do, and it's for a more limited time period, then you may well be better off with a consultancy agreement. That, that's really helpful. Thank you. And I think it, it's something everyone's going to have to bear in mind. I think another thing which particularly preoccupies people in the fintech space is the question of IP and how to protect that if, if an employee leaves. Do you have any advice look for firms to keep the IP confidential as a kind of a general principle for their firms? Yeah, I think this is a good idea for people to be aware of this as an issue. Uh, when you start employing people, if they are likely to invent things as part of their job, uh, you should definitely ask them to sign a specific agreement dealing with what happens with their inventions and the, the work that they create. Now, in the UK, uh, we have legislation which does protect employers to a certain extent and does give them automatic ownership of intellectual property in certain circumstances. Um, just to be, on the other hand, um, just to be aware, a consultant will usually own any intellectual property they create in their work unless there is a contractual agreement to the contrary. Um, in either case, James, I would say rather than leave it to chance, if you know that this is going to be an issue, it's a good idea to ask all people, including consultants and employees, to sign intellectual property agreements. Uh, and for employees, you just contain, you just include a clause in their contract of employment. Um, you should also give them job descriptions, um, which you should do as good practice anyway as an employer, and then you know uh, both parties are clear on what's expected. Um, but the job description in relation to IP should specifically refer to ownership of, say, patents if inventing is likely to form part of the employee's job. And another thing to consider including is um, putting in a contractual obligation on the part of the employee to disclose any inventions that they make and then they can't hide them from you. Um, 
to you as the employer and it, it all of this if you get all this sorted in writing at the beginning it makes it much less likely that you'll face issues later on yeah that's really helpful i think i found another related issue it is the question of employees or consultants working for competing businesses particularly since Sometimes if you get multiple firms in the same source of area, even if it's not an IP question as such, sometimes you, sharing isn't necessarily what you want to see. Do you have any advice looking to kind of make sure that their employees aren't act, also acting for businesses which might rival you? Yeah, absolutely. And again, um sound like a broken record here, but it is what you put in the But in this case, it's slightly different because it's not enough to ensure that you've got a, a good contract to start with, although that is, of course, very important. Um, with preventing what I call um, what's called unfair competition, it's really important to keep an eye on the terms of the contract to ensure that, yes, they're right at the beginning, but they're also right going um, throughout the employment relationship and they continue to be suitable and appropriate for the role that the employees in now rather than what they were originally start off in a very junior role um, at the start of the business and then they grow with the business and they get promoted promoted again and by the end um, you know after a few years the damage they could do to your business is significant if they left um, they've got all that knowledge in their head um, and potentially written down. You've got to be careful and make sure they can't walk off with that. So what you want to do is, is try and avoid a situation whereby an employee can use confidential information relating to um, processes, clients, etc. that they've gained through working for your business in order to go away and work for somebody else or set up a rival business. And there's a number of ways of doing that that I would recommend um, startups consider when they start hiring people. Um, the first is a confidentiality clause, which I've already mentioned earlier. Um, intellectual property clauses, as I've already said. Uh, and then this issue that you've mentioned, James, about termination, you know, what happens on termination and, and putting it in writing what you expect will happen on termination and what, what clauses you expect them to abide by even after they've left. And the clauses that we normally look at would be a non-compete clause, uh, which would prevent an employee from working from a competing business after they've left. Um, a non-solicit clause or a non-deal clause, which is where the employee agrees that they won't solicit business or they won't deal with one of your customers or clients um, once they've left your business. And then finally, you might want to include a non-poach clause, which is where you ask the employee to agree not to poach employees who are key employees from your business because that can be harmful as well if people come in and steal your staff who who are a valuable asset to your business um, the thing that people should bear in mind the general rule is that all of these clauses are on the face of it unenforceable and void um, as a unlawful restraint of trade unless you can show that the clauses go no further than they need to in order to protect your legitimate business interests. Um, so it's really important that you don't just use 
generic courses, which a lot of people do, and they just shove them in and say, well, 12 months for everything, non-compete, non-solicit. It's very unlikely that if you do that, the clauses are going to be enforceable. So unless you just think, well, it's fine for them to just be a deterrent um, for people to go away and um, work for competing businesses uh, or, or steal our, our employees and, and clients, it's far better that they should be drafted specifically with your business in mind. Now, non-compete clauses, so you might want to say, well, I don't want them to work in this sphere altogether once they've left. That's going to be really hard to enforce because it's so wide and it might potentially stop the employee working at all. So you've got to think, well, if that balance hasn't been achieved between me protecting my business and them being able to get another job, then that's it's not going to work. So you've got to limit it. So maybe geographically and location or just in time, limit it so it's it's more defined, more specific. You, you greatly increase your chances of it being enforceable. Um, and another tip which you should bear in mind, I've, I've touched on, is you've got a junior member of staff who rises through the business. You might think, well, I've got good, good contracts done at the start and they contain restrictive covenants um, because I wanted everybody to sign up to these and confidential information clauses. So I'm fine, aren't I? Um, we, we got the job done at the start. Well, that won't work in terms of restrictive covenants, unfortunately, uh, because the law is such that uh, when interpreting whether restrictive covenants are enforceable, um, they will look at the position the employee was in at the time the contract was entered into. So if you've only ever given somebody one contract and they were a junior administrator when they started and they're now business development director six years on, uh, the courts are going to look at would your restrictions be enforceable against a junior administrator, not a business development director and you can see that that would mean that it's way less likely to be enforceable and uh, they won't care that the person has now been promoted and paid a lot more money uh, it, it, it won't matter what what's important is um, what job they started doing and the way around that James is to make sure that your contracts are kept up to date with the person um, progressing through the business so when you promote somebody within your business make sure that you update their contract at the same time and actually say within the contract and within the offer letter that their promotion is contingent upon signing a new agreement which contains more specifically drafted restrictive covenants. Um, because if you do it that way and you actually tie in uh, compliance with the restrictive covenants with say a pay rise or they might be given share options or something like that and make clear that the two are very much um, tied together then you avoid the risk later on of the employee saying well there was no consideration attached you weren't giving me anything well yes we were we were giving you a promotion we were also giving you these benefits which you signed up to at the time so that is really important to just keep an eye on it um, with with your really important employees who you know could do a lot of harm um, when they leave. Uh, hopefully they won't leave, but if they do, you want to be sure that you've covered yourselves. Um, one thing just to consider as well is the issue of garden leave. And you might not care about this, but it's, it's a useful thing to contain um, as a clause in a contract of employment because it effectively allows you, uh, when somebody hands in the notice, 
um, to keep them at home away from your customers and your clients so they can avoid uh, speaking to them that the relationship then goes cold hopefully uh, and it can allow you to go in and secure and protect those key relationships uh, but if you don't have a garden leave clause in your contract then you can't impose it uh, it's as simple as that um, so James my general advice would be uh, whilst I say yes get decent contracts in place at the start which are specifically designed with your business in mind and um, you should also make sure that they are regularly reviewed as well uh, to ensure that your business is protected and they continue to be fit for purpose and yes this all sounds like it might be more expensive and time consuming at the start when you've got hundreds of other things that you'd rather be doing uh, but trust me I tend to see that when it all goes wrong and the slightly additional cost of getting bespoke contracts drafted is nothing compared with the cost of litigation uh, when things um, go go wrong later down the uh, later down the line when proper terms weren't agreed. So that's the takeaway: get it all agreed in writing and keep it under review. Uh, that, that's that's really fascinating. Thank you. And I think that that bit about keeping it under review, I think. A lot that a lot of people miss that. So I think that that's one you know people, people should be particularly aware of. And fair, that's all we've got time for. But it's been absolutely fascinating. If, thank. If anyone's interested in speaking to Rachel directly, her email is Rachel R A C H E L dot Spink S P I N K at Gunnercook dot com. Rachel, thanks for being on. It's been fantastic. Thanks very much, James. Lovely to be here.